Hi, this is Rachel on Recover. We've got a special guest, Amber. She's a survivor of having a borderline mother. Amber, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. My name is Amber, and um, I am a speech-language pathologist. I am 29, and I am a survivor of a BPD mom. Um, today, in my answers, I'm going to keep kind of vague, not that my mom you know, listens to any podcast because I don't think she does, but (laughs) on that off chance and for my own personal anxieties sake, I will just leave out, you know, names, specific places, but I will, you know, describe the general consensus of what happened. But yeah, that's basically me. Okay. Um, when did you realize something wasn't right with your mom? I've always had issues with my mom. Uh, The real issue started when I was 13, which I'm not sure is kind of if if that's a typical pattern for a BPD mom, but, you know, that's when kids start to develop independence. They want to, you know, develop their own identity and kind of separate from their parents. Um, But I finally started to get an inkling that something was actually wrong in college I remember specifically there was one night in grad school. I was actually, it was pouring down rain. I was in the parking lot of my church, actually, and I was on the phone with my aunt, who's actually my mom's sister, and I just remember sobbing, sobbing, (laughs) because I had finally figured it out. Um, My mom's always had a ton of relationship issues, you know, and it, but it's always their fault. She's always the victim. So her entire family, her sister, she's never had a good relationship with, she's never had a good relationship with, you know, it ebbs and flows with her coworkers and friendships as well. Just, you know, personal relationships have always ebbed and flowed and there's always been these major issues. And, you know, I've always had issues with her as well. And so I remember kind of looking up different personality disorders or kind of just mental health issues, and I discovered borderline personality disorder one day, and honestly, I kind of forget how it all came about. I don't know if I just typed in my mom's symptoms, because my mom is very all or nothing, Um, you know, she'll go from zero to 100 and, you know, 0.2 seconds. Um, so I don't know if I just typed in symptoms and then borderline came up and then I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is 100% her. And, you know, and I compared and contrasted it to narcissism and other things too. But after reading borderline, I was like, this is it. And so it was that night when I was talking to my aunt, I was like, this, this is what she has. I just know what I was so confident about it. Um, um, How was your mother's BPD affecting your education? Uh, Well, I went as far as I could for grad school. Uh, I went clear across the country, actually. Um, She later told me that I abandoned her. (laughs) So that was a nice little comment. Just trying to, you know, get educated and also, you know, make a life for myself and quote unquote, you know, abandoning her. Um, but I wouldn't say it really has affected my education. My mom's a pretty driven person, and so, I mean, if anything, it just motivated me to be more educated. I don't, I don't know, but I don't think it really affected me that much, other than 
kind of that one comment and then me wanting to go very far away okay. for grad school. Um, how has this affected your ability to date? So, I've dated quite a few narcissists, <laughs> which I know is definitely a pattern of people who have survived BPD parents. Um, I've dated a lot of guys that, you know, you, you feel like we're in a problem in the relationship. And I don't even want to say relationship. I, I have not had long relationships with men. Uh, typically it lasts between one month to three months. Um, I really haven't gone past that because I want to either freak out. That, would, that actually happened a lot in college where I just would kind of go into this panic after about the third date and I would just be so worried about you know getting too serious and then getting either getting my heart broken or worse getting married to that person and then finding out that they're not who I thought they were that you know they're a narcissist or they're a bad person and so I would just end it um but then I went on this long string of dating just really narcissistic guys for longer than I should have and just feeling really bad in that relationship and not feeling loved or respected um so to answer your question, I developed a very intense avoidant attachment style uh, and that I've always really struggled with a significant inferiority complex as well, which has affected my confidence within relationships. So, you know, dating a narcissist, they always make you feel really good at the beginning and then they make you feel bad. <laughs> like once they have you on the hook, then that's when they're like, you know, they start to take advantage of you. And so... But, you know, not having a lot of confidence, you're kind of, it just kind of left me feeling like I deserved it, I guess. But now, after lots of therapy, um, I have ended that streak and have now been dating a lot of really good guys, um, but still just kind of struggle. So I just started actually with a new therapist who specializes in dating. So I think that, um, I think that'll be really helpful for my recovery in that area yeah, specifically. I, I'm always the anxious dating the avoidant, so I get that. Attachment yes. style, those are real things, man. Seriously. And they have... Yes, they really are. <laughs> um, how has this affected your career? So, like I said, it hasn't... It hasn't affected my career really as a whole, but it did affect my first real job out of grad school. Um, it was right around my parents' divorce, and I started suffering from really, really, really severe depression. Uh, and so after about six months, I got let go from my first job, <laughs> which was not super affirming in the sense that, you know, I just got all this education and it was like, am I even good at this? Um, so yeah, so I would say that that was probably the biggest part of my life that was affected by, uh, my BPD, BPD parent. Um, so yeah, so, and, and during that, those six months, that's when my depression and anxiety started to get really, really severe, and I hadn't realized it, and so I think it, it definitely affected my work, so I can pretty much guarantee that I, I really was not the best employee, 
I can pretty much guarantee it because I was just so depressed that I was pretty much just not, I was functioning, but I almost from an out of body experience, you know, I was just kind of on autopilot, but I probably wasn't the most optimal employee. So I don't fault my boss for letting me go, but it was definitely not. It was also a very toxic workplace, which didn't help. My boss was, according to my therapist at the time, my boss may have struggled with some sort of uh, mental health issue like BPD. She was very, very, um, you know, she would be highs and lows. She would, you know, one day she would love you, the next day she would hate you and talk about all the, you know, the bad things you were doing in your job and how incompetent you were and whatever it may be. And she got really personal too with one of our therapists who was struggling with anxiety and her weight. She suggested going to the gym and she gave her this exercise or diet book or something. <laughs> and for me, she she had made some, I forget what they even were. She made some personal suggestions. She's like, you really struggle with confidence. You need to start working on that. And so she got really personal, which is kind of inappropriate for a boss to do. <laughs> so... I mean, it wasn't the best work situation in general, to be honest, but it definitely was affected by my issues with BBD. I think I would have handled it a lot better, too. I just kind of was a pincushion for several months and then finally stood up for myself, and that's when she finally let me go because she realized she couldn't control me because I finally would just had this realization. I'm like, nope, <laughs> you're not going to... You've been doing this to the other therapist, and you're not going to do it to me, so... But that's probably been the, the biggest time it's affected me, I would say. The most significant time it's affected me. You are more prone to end up in those types of environments because of your past, I would say. So Exactly. I had a therapist say one time that you, you experience something over and over and over again until you learn it. So... I don't know if that's just kind of a, a universe thing or if it's just we put ourselves in those positions. We just naturally are, you know, attracted to those types of situations. I don't really know which one it is, but we definitely find ourselves in situations with those kind of toxic people more so, I think, than other people who don't suffer from those well, because experiences. It's Exactly. <laughs> That's 100%. It's familiar. It's com comfortable. It's what, it's normal. It's what we know. So it's what we're naturally attracted to. Um, how has this affected your own mental health? Um, so like I was explaining, I went through a severe season of depression and anxiety. I actually was waking up nightly with panic attacks for a while. So it would be like two in the morning. I'd be sound asleep. And it took me, you know, it would take me forever to fall asleep to begin with. And so I'd finally be asleep. And then, you know, in the middle of the night, I'd wake up just my heart racing. Racing for no reason. I wasn't even really having anxious thoughts. I wasn't even really having a nightmare or anything. Just randomly, I would have these panic attacks. And when they first started hop happening, I thought I had had a stroke. <laughs> and so I, had, I went to the doctor. <laughs> I actually went to the ER. And they did, um, they did a couple tests, and they were like, you're fine. I think they did a CAT scan or something. But um, 
it was just something I hadn't experienced myself. Um, and so, yeah, so it was about six months of severe, severe, severe depression and anxiety to the point where I was very out of body. Like, I was completely numb, and it felt like I was looking at myself from up above, which I know some people have experienced. And then I had completely lost my sense of taste. So every time I tasted food, it just tasted like concrete. And it was a very weird experience, and I don't know if anyone's ever experienced that before, but it legitimately just, I can't even describe the taste. It just didn't have any taste anymore. And so, um, yeah, it wasn't until uh, a friend from back home noticed how bad I was. Um, and she actually sent me on a plane home, basically, which I'll explain a little bit more in, in detail later. But uh, that's when I was able to get on medication, and um, which definitely helped me. And medication, I don't believe, is for everyone, and it's it's very circumstantial, but... If you need it, you need it. <laughs> so, yeah, and um, so medication, I've been on medication ever since, and that has dramatically changed How my life. How has this affected your physical health, including headaches? Um, I wouldn't say it's affected my physical health too much. I get tension headaches, but it's more related to poor posture than mental health, I believe. Um. It's definitely affecting my sleep patterns. I feel tired most of the time, even if I've had eight or more hours of sleep. Uh, and that's something that I'm really, really focusing on this year, and I'm trying to remedy with therapy and exercise and, you know, vitamins, especially vitamin D. I'm really low on vitamin D, so I've been trying to take more of that. Um, and then during my initial experience with depression, I did have symptoms of hypothyroidism, um, so I had low, and I'm going to forget the exact, TMH or TSH levels. I forget exactly the, the, um, the letters. But um, so I was taking uh, hypothyroid medication, levothyroxine, for a couple years until my thyroid levels kind of um, normalized. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I probably eat more than I should. But <laughs> like... You know, but that's nothing outside of that really. I would say has affected my it's physical health. It's actually really common for borderline and like some people who have borderline mothers to have hyperthyroid problems. So you're not alone in that. And that's actually, well, the thyroid controls almost everything to do with trauma. So yeah, that's kind of what I've read too. So it does make sense. Um, and a lot of my doctors said, you know, you'll never outgrow it. You'll never outgrow it. It's something that you're just going to live with. But my levels, I think, were so, they weren't super extremely off. I think it was just because of stress and everything and just what I was dealing with with my BPD mom at the time that now with, you know, reduced stress and more managed anxiety, I think that, you know, because I've gotten my levels tested for the past couple of years and they've all been normal now. So, but I have read that thyroid issues are very, very common. Um, what has been the most helpful tool with, when dealing with a borderline parent? Boundaries. And when I wrote this down, I capitalized it. <laughs> because boundaries are the hardest, hardest, hardest thing to do. Um, but they are the, definitely the most worthwhile. 
Um, so boundaries and lots and lots of therapy, I would say. Um, after a lot of research, so I did a ton of research. When I kind of discovered this, I was I started therapy when I discovered my mom had issues, and then I started doing a ton of research about borderline. I bought a ton of books. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners who have BPT moms, they've read the book Understanding the Borderline Mother by Christine Ann Lawson, which is like the Bible of um, BPD. So that really helped me. My mom is a queen mother with waif characteristics as well. Um, So that's kind of a little bit about my mom. But um. But, yeah, I finally just made the decision that I would keep her in my life with a set of really strict boundaries. And if she continued to violate my boundaries, I would have to accept that she will no longer be in my life. So, basically, I came to understanding my mom is who she is. I, you know, tried therapy with her. We went to two therapy sessions, and it was disastrous. I went to actually, she had gone to a therapist a couple of times going through her divorce. And so I suggested going to this therapist because she knew her and she was, it was her therapist. She had gone to a couple of times and it was that therapist who literally looked at my mom and was like, you know what? You have to make changes. <laughs> like you are the one who has to make changes, not your daughter and, or your son. Cause my brother had come with us too. And it was just disastrous. Um, she actually recorded the session and later played it for people. So that was I'm surprised your therapist allowed that. <laughs> she didn't know. It was done secretly in wow. her purse. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So I finally accepted, you know, I have done all the therapy I can. I've read all the books. I have done everything on my end to try to remedy this, and I've tried talking to my mom about things. Every time I would bring up something to my mom that had affected me, like one thing specifically was she definitely tried to live vicariously through me in junior high and high school, and that was a really, really big issue because it kind of just morphed our identities into one. I never really was able to develop my own identity because she was always hovering and there and she wanted to just be a part of everything and that was something that I brought up to her um that had really affected me and you know I think it was like a day or two later she storms into my room and was like I can't believe you said that you're basically accusing me of being a terrible mother and I spent so much time and money on you and you're accusing me of being a bad mother And all of a sudden, my trauma and my experience was completely ignored, and it was all about her. (laughs) So, but yeah, so after trying to discuss my issues with her, you know, have mature conversations, therapy, reading books, educating myself, I finally came to the realization that if she truly has borderline, which I believe she does, I mean, she's undiagnosed because she won't go to therapy, but, um... She can't ever rationalize. She will never be able to rationalize. And there's something in her brain that's creating a brick wall that does not allow her to. And if that's her fault or it's not her fault, whatever the case may be, the reality is she can't. So I just had to accept that. So I was like, like I was kind of saying, I had two options. 
either I keep her in my life with a, a set of strict boundaries because that's the only way to protect myself, um, or if she violates those boundaries, then she's out of my life. And I had to accept that too. So I had to accept that there might be a time in my life I might not have a mom. Um, and then I also had to accept that my mom will never be the mom that I had wanted, that I had seen in movies or I had seen my friends grow up with. And she will never be that. And yes, it's sad. And yes, I've had to process that. But it does me no good to dwell on that for the rest of my life because the reality is that will never change. So wishing she was different, wishing she was better won't help me, you know, and it'll never help me succeed. It'll never help me get better because it will never change. You know, wishing my dog was a cat does me no good because he can never be a cat. He will always be a dog. So wishing my mom was someone different than she is, is just a fool's errand, you know? So that's kind of been, I guess, my most helpful tool besides, I mean, but that's a tool that I kind of got to through therapy. So I would say therapy helped me get there. And then obviously educating myself and then groups are also helpful. Yeah, we met in a group. So. Great resource for anybody <laughs> who's dealing with borderlines. Yes. It's, it's a yes. fantastic organization and it's free and they have courses and all kinds of resources that are super helpful. And the biggest thing I feel like with any sort of trauma is having a community of people. When you talk about something, somebody else is like, yes, I understand exactly what you're going through. Because it can be so isolating otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having groups is so helpful because it really just affirms what you're going through, too. Because my... My issue throughout my whole life slash kind of my current issue, to be honest, because me and my mom have actually gone through a a span of time where things have been really good between us. And so during those times, I mean, which is right now, we've been really, really good for quite a quite a bit, a long stretch right now. And so those long stretches, though, make me question myself and I go back to this place of, you know, maybe I was wrong. Like, (laughs) maybe it was me just being selfish or I was just being a brat or whatever. Um, Or maybe I was just being dramatic or I was just feeling sorry for myself. You know, my mom's really great. Um, So it really helps to go to groups because it's a reminder like, okay, no, I wasn't wrong. I I was very right. And I have a group of people who also understand. Um... And, you know, it's different because every borderline mom is different. They have a different characteristic. Like, it lists in the book, the um, Christine and Lawson one, there's four yeah. different types, right? Four different types? Yeah. Um, the queen, the waif, the witch, and the yeah, uh, hermit. It's definitely a waif. So, everyone's ex- definitely a waif. So, yeah, she was... She Your was mom was? And the queen. Yeah, she was... And, Okay, but which same as my mom. probably more waif than queen. Well, it just depended on the day. I mean, and then the witch occasionally came out. But, I mean, for the most part, most borderlines are never witches for very long, if ever. But. Yeah. I know the witch chapter was a little hard for me to read because that one just, ugh, I just. My mom didn't really have any witch tendencies, but having a witch mother would be pretty well, traumatic. Well, most 
most of them are either a combination of two and then the witch occasionally comes out. There are very few uh-huh. actual, like, m- majority witch, which is a very, like, minimal aspect. Uh-huh. At least that's what I read and I understood. And I don't think a lot of children would even survive a witch mother. I and mean, they just, they don't make it. That's what I was reading, too, and that's why it was hard for me to read that chapter, because it kind of seemed that way, that a lot of kids wouldn't survive a witch mother. So, which is perfect. But those are kind of, I mean, those are the one-offs that you see on, you know, the documentaries on TV. (laughs) So, which is very rare, luckily. of course, I mean, I felt like sometimes she even had hermit tendencies, but those were kind of rare, too. But, But I feel like those were just classifications, but... I'd definitely say she's waif and queen, so. Yeah, that being said, the groups, you know, are helpful. Everyone's experience is going to be a little different because every mom is going to have different characteristics. uh, And they're going to, you know, everyone's going to have different experiences. But the majority, you know, the majority of symptoms are the same. And so it's just nice to have a group to relate to. And, you know, when... um, you know, when you're having a hard day, it's just nice to have someone to text. Like, I have one person still from the group that will text me and be like, I'm just having a hard day, or like, I just need advice, and, you know, it's just, it's just nice to have someone there, Very you much. know. I completely understand. Um, Alright, uh, how has this impacted your finances? So, finances... Um, I also said that I don't think it really has impacted my finances, except for having to pay for therapy. Uh, like I've been saying, therapy is so important to me that I've always paid out of pocket for a good therapist that fit my needs, rather than just going to one that was covered by my insurance. Um, because, yeah, the ones that I've, I've encountered through insurance just haven't been super great, and typically they're really only there if you're suicidal, like if you're gonna if you're about to kill yourself, that's what they're there for. <laughs> and so from my experience, they haven't really been super helpful for, you know, actually gaining progress and learning tools to kind of survive. So I've always paid out of pocket, which is expensive. Mine is like 150 bucks. And um so I go every two weeks. And, you know, I haven't I'm in a pretty good financial situation right now. I'm decent. Like, I'm able to pay my bills. Um, I don't have much left over, but I'm able to pay my bills right now. But even when I was less financially independent, it's always been something that's very important to me because, you know, in the in our lifespan, you know, if I've got 70, 80 years left on this earth, I would rather be $300 poorer every month to get better early, you know, than to wait till I was 50 and then decide I'm going to get better, you know. I just see that as years wasted. I'm like, I'd rather just get better now, spend the money, and, you know, if I have to skip out on things that, you know, like getting my hair done or something, then that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make to get better because I just, I don't like feeling miserable, and I was miserable for so long. And I just kind of made that choice. I'm like, if I'm going to be on this earth, I, you know, I have two choices. I'm either going to be on this earth and happy or not on this earth. 
So I'm obviously not suicidal, so that's I'm not going to make that choice. So if I don't make that choice, I'm going to be on this earth and I'm going to be alive. So I'm going to do my best to make sure that I make it worthwhile for myself and that I'm not miserable and that I'm actually happy and I find some joy. So that would probably be the biggest impact, I say, financially, other than I do struggle with binge shopping sometimes. I wouldn't say binge shopping, like, going nuts. I don't... I don't go to the mall and spend a thousand bucks in one sitting, but I'm definitely not the most cautious when it comes to my credit card sometimes. So that's something that I probably learned from my mom that I have been trying to remedy. <laughs> but oh yeah, yeah I mean, exciting. I think a lot of it is buying in different ways and different outlets, dealing with trauma in some sort of fashion and shopping is definitely one I think many of us are guilty of doing not all but it's a very common one yeah it's just so easy you know especially with Amazon and credit cards it's like I need this (laughs) I'm gonna get it so and you can get it in an instant you know it's just so easy so that's definitely been my struggle but what I've been working on this past year is really just being sitting and being still. I actually got a tattoo for the first time, and it says, be still. Be still and know that I am God has been a really important verse to me. Um, just, like, being still, being present, you know, almost meditating on your blessings, I think, has helped me. And I don't, I'm not always good about this. But sitting down and being like, listen, I have a roof over my head. I have, you know, great friends. I've got a job that helps me afford groceries, you know, and I, I think the more that I do that, it helps me spend less because I'm more I'm more just grateful for what I have rather than what I don't have. And I remember people saying, you know, do a blessings list or do a gratitude list every day and therapists have suggested that to me and it just sounds annoying to me. And I don't think it's something you need to do on a daily basis. I mean, it would definitely help if people did, but I don't think it really works for me to do on a daily basis. But when I am feeling, like, super spendy or super, like, I want all these things that I don't have, um, that does help me a lot just to kind of sit and be like, listen, I have a lot of great things that five years ago I wanted. Like, five years ago I didn't have, and this was my dream. And now I have it. And so I just really need to be grateful and sit and enjoy, enjoy what I have. Because I feel like a lot of times, especially our current generation, we don't really enjoy what we have. We sit there wishing for things we don't have. Well, and I think, you know, that we definitely have too much stuff in general, especially in America. We have the land of plenty. But I do think, uh, I think... There's uh, one lady, she did a book, I can't remember her name, but it's on, like, you can rewire your brain by being, like, uh, by working on gratitude. Like, it actually rewires your brain. So, I don't know if doing it every day, but definitely making it maybe part of your weekly routine of just being like, hey, I am thankful for this, and I am thankful for this, and God has taken care of this and this, and... I feel like that just is helpful, especially if we're dealing with shopping addictions or just overspending in general. Because, I mean, not everything's addiction, even if, you know, you want to buy, oh, I should have bought that, but I bought it because it was fun. 
So, so um, how has this impacted your uh, social life? Confidence and social anxiety has been uh, kind of two big ones. I would go through spurts where I would get intense anxiety in large groups. Um, so I'd often have to excuse myself to go to the bathroom or I would just leave. I would even stutter over my words and I'd almost have this blackout experience um, where I just, you know, my thoughts would just black out. They would just disappear. <laughs> it would almost be like a deer in the headlights kind of situation. Um, so, and that actually still happens to me. Um, but I'm just way better at managing it. So, uh, I mean, I still kind of, I still get anxiety in large groups and I still, you know, start to stutter over my words. So I guess just how I manage it now is I just try to breathe and I just try to pause and really think about my thoughts and what I'm about to say. And that kind of helps me. And then I just keep reminding myself, I'm like, I'm okay. Like, I'm fine. And then... But typically, finding someone in that group that I can talk to helps. Um, I'm definitely better on one-on-one situations. So if I'm in large groups, like at a party or at a church group or something, having just one person to talk to typically will help me. But it's still something I struggle with, but I'm, I'm better at managing. Yeah, no, that can be helpful for a lot of people, especially if you struggle with social anxiety. So. Yeah. And just... <clears throat> I know, I mean, I'm an extrovert, but I mean, still, sometimes I'm just like, I'd rather a small group of people than a big group, because that can sometimes feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I'm actually an extrovert, too, and I remember, I think it was in grad school, I, that was really when the, this was, you know, a couple of years, or maybe five or, five or six years ago, when personality tests were kind of the big thing. I know they're still big now, but you know, the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs and everything has always been like extrovert, extrovert. And my friends have told me before that I'm the biggest extrovert that they know. And I think it's a combination. I am very extroverted because I really do get energy from other people, but a lot of it, I think, stemmed from codependence for a while too. So I was very codependent on people and I really just obviously depended on them for my emotional regulation, uh, which I've managed um and kind of healed from more so uh but I'm definitely extroverted and I remember in grad school like praying to God one time I was so upset (laughs) I was like God why did you make me an extrovert with social anxiety like this sucks like this sucks like I don't like being by myself I get no energy from being by myself I've tried but every time I'm with people, I get anxiety, and it's just this double-edged sword. And so I remember specifically, like, having a conversation with him, and I'm like, I'm just pissed. <laughs> like, this sucks. So, but obviously, I'm better at managing my social anxiety now, and so I'm able to get my energy from being with people without also going into this anxious, anxious mess, you know? <laughs> Next question. What advice would you give uh, children with borderline parents? Boundaries, which again, I capitalized and underlined when I was taking notes. Uh, and lots and lots of therapy. Um, 
but really a, a lot of people say therapy is the answer but it's it's not just therapy that is the answer in my opinion it's the mindset you really really have to want to get better and you really have to follow through with the advice from your therapist like you have to understand that you're learning all the things you didn't know you didn't know and you're relearning a lot of things about regular life that you thought were normal um, but that aren't they're not normal it's not normal to have you know a super dysfunctional stressful childhood that's not normal that's not how it was designed to be um, and you'll never ever get better if you're not open to the process so if you just go into therapy if you go into therapy thinking it's you know a quick you know a quick fix yeah exactly like like the, the physical act of going to therapy is the solution and it's not it's actually listening to what they have to say and because you have to redevelop like you were saying you have to rewire your brain and you have to redevelop these thinking patterns that you've had your whole life and you have to have tools for dealing with your struggles like anxiety or social anxiety or depression you have to have tools in your toolbox or else you're really just not going to recover and that's what therapy really does it gives you tools for your toolbox so that when you know you're having a panic attack you can take one of those tools and you can be like okay I'm going to use this and then this is going to help me kind of get back to equilibrium you know and therapists have tons of different you know tips and tricks and it's so different for everybody on what is going to be helpful for them you know they have the five what is it the five senses one it's like look for five things here here four thing I forget what it is yeah <laughs> something like that to kind of ground you yeah. So there's tons of tips, grounding exercises. There's tons of tips and tricks, though, that I'll use. And, um, but again, it's just that mindset of wanting to get better. And you're just realizing, again, like what I was saying earlier, do you want to live the next 60, 70 years of your life miserable? Like, no. And I think for a while I didn't think I deserved it. I think I struggled with feeling feeling like I didn't deserve it. I, I really struggled. So I grew up Christian and I think I struggled for a bit with the whole, um, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't complain about anything because I don't live in a mud hut in you know, the middle of the desert or something, <laughs> you know, like in a third world country, I don't have to walk a mile for water. Um, and so I think that I just developed this mindset in my head that because I didn't have to struggle on that level you know I wasn't living on the streets I had a home from the outside looking in my life looked pretty perfect I had a really nice house and I had you know nice looking parents who you know for the most part treated me really nicely and they took care of me and so I think for a while I didn't feel that I deserved to complain um and so I think getting to the point where I realized, you know, like everyone is on a, a different journey. And I think I read somewhere too that they did like a happiness study and there were people in third world countries that were way happier than people who were millionaires. And so I finally got to the realization that it really isn't happiness and joy isn't measured by stuff. It's not measured by what your life looks like from the outside and everyone's gonna have a different journey. So 
I mean, we're all going to have a different problem to fix in our own lives, and we're all going to have a different journey, and they're not, they're not, like, equally compared to each other. So just because, you know, my life, I can't equally compare my struggle to a millionaire's struggle or to a person with a third world country's struggle. You know, we're all equally deserving of happiness, and that's going to look different for all of us. So I think once I finally got to that realization, too, that I deserve happiness, I deserve to have joy, and that, you know, just like I want my friend, you know, I want my friends to have such a great life, and I believe that God wants us to have a good life, and just like I believe that, you know, my friend, I'll just say, like, my friend Joe, I'll just call I don't have a friend Joe, but, and, you know, God wants Joe's life to be amazing and fulfilling and have purpose, and just like, as much as he cares about Joe, he cares about me. And so I think that that's also what helped me, too, was, like, he really does care just as much about me. So why am I discrediting myself so much? Why am I, why do I not feel worthy? Because I am worthy. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's just I'm a human, and we're all equal. And we all are equally deserving of happiness. So I think also getting to that point of understanding, like, you deserve to get better. You deserve to live a fulfilled life. And you had no control over where you were born, what color you were born, who you were born to, like, who your parents are. Zero control over that. The only thing you do have control over is what you do with the cur your current life. So, I also don't like, <laughs> I also don't like whiners. <laughs> like, whining really bothers me unless you have a solution for it. Like, and I when I say whiners, I just mean the people who are always playing the victim. They're like, my life sucks, and da 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 and like, you know, it's just always another problem, but then they're really never working towards fixing it. So my idea is that, like, if you have problems in your life, like, you're, you should, you should actively be trying to fix it and make it better. So, um... I'm going to forget where I was going with this, but, like, yes, it's not your fault what happened to you in the past, but it is your responsibility once you have the understanding that there is a problem, it's your responsibility at that point to move forward and work towards a resolution for yourself. Yes. Does that kind of make, make sense? Make a plan and go with it and then add to it as... Yeah. Thing as you learn more, because I feel like with any sort of recovery with trauma, you're always learning, oh, this is something new I can try. And does it work for you? Maybe. Maybe not. You know, I've tried all kinds of different things with my trauma recovery. So, and I, I always encourage people, hey, you know, it may not work for you, but it may, it might just change your life. Exactly. And... It is 100% not your fault what happened to you during your childhood or whatever whatever people's trauma is. It's not their fault that something happened to them. But it is their responsibility, in my opinion, or at least for how I see it in my life. It's my responsibility to learn from it and move forward with my life in a responsible way, I guess. Like, to kind of take ownership, like, listen... This is what I struggle with. It wasn't my fault, but I'm not going to stay this way because I'm an adult. 
I have a brain. You know, I've been blessed with a healthy body. I've been blessed with a healthy brain. And it's my job now to learn from this experience and grow from it and become a better person and more fulfilled in my life. So, because if, if I just were to stay a victim my whole life, then that's not my mom's fault. Like, if I wanted to just sprout, you know, every day I don't get out of bed because, you know, my mom was mean to me when I was little, like, that's not, that's not going to help me at all, you know? So I think, I think that that's just kind of my perspective, which might not be everyone's perspective, but I think it's just kind of been my motivation really to get better though, too. Well, thanks for coming on our show and thanks for answering all our questions. Uh, um, appreciate your story because a lot of us are struggling with the borderline mother or borderline father, whichever people are struggling with. Um, but um, thanks for listening. And Amber, maybe we'll come back on a follow-up in a few months, maybe a couple of years. Who knows? Uh, Sounds all right. good. Thank you thanks so much. for listening. You can always follow us on Spotify or Audible or Apple or Google. Um, and then you can always come to our website at www.rachelonrecovery.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>